our Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. And it is with joy that we open up Revelation again tonight. Uh, It is the night that we observe the Lord's Supper. And since this is the first Sunday night of the quarter, and we also have the double blessing that it is the uh, first Sunday night of the new year. And so that means that we get to start out the new year with this great ordinance that the Lord gave to his church. And he gave it to us in anticipation of his return. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Uh, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that we reach the time of the Lord's Supper tonight very same time that we're studying just a very important Bible doctrine as we talk about the Lord's church and the bride of Christ. Uh, And this evening, I'm preaching to you the final part of a five-part mini-series, and I don't think that there's a better way that we can end it than to do it uh, taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service tonight. Now, as we've learned in this series, uh, Jesus is coming back to take his bride, and there's going to be a great celebration. There, there will be a great wedding feast. The bridegroom, of course, is the chief attraction of this wedding, but the bride is also very important, and she stands in a very special place among the redeemed of all the ages. The bride is chosen among the very faithful of God's people and the Lord's church. Now, there are going to be many invited guests to this wedding, uh, many attendees that have been saved all the way from the time of Adam up until the end of the tribulation period, but it's only those that are a part of the Lord's church that are going to be in the bride. Now, at the, this evening, at the close of the message, we're going to observe the supper, and, and the supper is a church ordinance. It's, it's for the members of the Lord's church, and I just don't think that we blindly stumbled on this um, at the same time uh, as we're studying this, this, this doctrine of the bride of Christ, you don't, you, these things don't happen by chance. I think the Lord's timing is impeccable. So I'd like us to look then into the scriptures and our text verses in Revelation 19. And we're studying verses 7 through 10, which tell us about this great preparation of the feast when the Lamb of God, the bridegroom, will come to take his bride. Revelation 19 and uh, verse number 7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, as you know, we have a multi-part message. And there have been parts previous to this, four parts previous, that dealt with a lot of information. And I I just don't have time to give you all that information again. But I do want to list for you the points that we've already talked about. And uh, I'm sure you probably don't remember, unless you have some other notes with you there, you probably don't remember all the blanks that go in in your listening sheet. So I'm just going to mention all these together, and I'll say something briefly about them in just a moment. Number one was the contract for the marriage. Then number two, the choice for the marriage. Number three is the church in the marriage. Four is the call to the marriage. And number five is the chastity in the marriage. 
Now, the, the contract is the covenant between the Father and the Son that the Son would redeem a people for his name. And this was an eternal covenant that was made before the world was created. And so it's not a reactionary response by God to a world that's suddenly gone awry. Everything that happens in the world, God has planned it. It's by God's design, and it's all for his glory. Then the choice is the selection of a particular people that would be in the bride, and that's not based upon God's foreknowledge of anything that we would do, not of our foreseen faith, any, any good thing that we would do, but it's based upon God's design to give faith to those that would be in his bride, and he would say. And the church and the marriage, that would be the number of people uh, that are, uh, from which the bride is selected. Israel is not called the bride of Christ. Those that are outside of the church are not called the bride of Christ. The New Testament is very clear about this, that Christ loved his church, and the church stands in a unique position among all people that have been saved in any time of the world. But we also have others that are called to this marriage, and they're not the bride. They are attendees. They're invited to come to the wedding feast, but they're not a part of the bride. And that includes all of the people that were saved prior to uh, the formation of the church in the New Testament. So we're talking about Old Testament believers. They're honored guests. People like John the Baptist, who was called the friend of the bridegroom. Then there's Adam and Enoch and Noah and Moses Moses and David and Elijah. Everybody that was saved up to the first advent of Christ and the establishment of of the church is an invitee to the wedding feast. And then after the church is taken out of the world at the rapture, there will be millions of people that are saved. Jews and Gentiles alike will hear the gospel of Christ. Many people will come to him and they'll be saved. And they're also invitees to the wedding. They'll be there, but they're not the bride. And then we talked about the chastity in the marriage. The purity of the Lord's bride is symbolized by white linen robes that she wears. Now, she has received the righteousness of Christ in her salvation, but she also receives the rewards of her faithful service to the Lord, and that's symbolized in the clothing that she wears. And because of this special relationship that she has to the Savior, she is rewarded, and she wears that honor symbolized in her clothing. Now, the intention of Christ is to purify his people and to conform them to his image so that they are without blemish. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. The church would be without spot and blemish. And then when that sanctification of God's people is complete and they're glorified, then they become the bride of Christ in heaven. Now, that then summarizes the previous messages. And so we're going to go on and, and speak this evening of the final two aspects of the, of the kingdom of Christ in relation to the bride and the great feast that's going to take place. And then when I'm done speaking about those two issues, I do want to spend just a few minutes on verse number 10 so we can talk about it before we take the Lord's Supper. So number six in our outline is the celebration of the marriage. Weddings are always a time of celebration. In our culture, the wedding is usually done in one day. Uh, The wedding takes place in one day. All the celebration usually takes place in one day. And then when that day is concluded, everything is over. The bride and the groom, they go merrily on their way, and the parents are left to deal with the mess. And that's generally the way that weddings work today. But a wedding in Bible times wasn't like that because the celebrations would go on for a week or longer. And the celebrations were were massive, especially when you were talking about wealthy families. 
Now, verse number 9 of our text sets the stage for the celebration of the Lamb after he's taken his wife. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So that marriage supper is the time that refers to the celebration. And that takes place after the presentation of the bride. Now, verse number 7 says, The marriage of the Lamb has come. And the word there for marriage can mean, can actually mean the marriage itself, or it can mean the marriage feast. And it appears here that it's speaking about the marriage feast because the marriage has already taken place. And so we notice then the presentation of the bride, and this takes place after the rapture. So the marriage of the lamb to the bride occurs immediately after the rapture of the church. When the church is called home, the church is taken out of the world for this purpose, to be united to the bridegroom. And then there are seven years of tribulation that follow, and that is getting the world into the position where they can honor the bride and the bridegroom in the celebration. If you remember the story of when Jesus went to the marriage feast of Cana, that he went there and, and uh, he turned water into wine. The ceremony had taken place and the celebration was going on. Uh, the bride was being presented. The marriage partners would be brought out. Uh, and and uh, that, feast was, uh, that part of the feast was the time to honor the bridegroom and the bride. And that's what Jesus was doing when he was there. He was there during the celebration period. And the counterpart to that, as we're talking here in Revelation chapter 19, it is ongoing celebration of the church, and it's not uh, uh, the wedding of the church to the, to the bridegroom, and it's not a day-long event, it's not a week-long event. And I promise you, as long as you live, you'll never go to a celebration like this, because this is one that takes place for a thousand years. The celebration takes place for a thousand years. And so the wedding feast then is actually the announcement of the millennium. This is the millennial reign of Christ when he's coming to earth to rule the world in righteousness. The tribulation that preceded this, it's for the purpose of cleaning up the world, getting it into the place where Christ can rule in that millennial kingdom. And during that time, uh, as I said, uh, Christ's world uh, rules the world in perfect peace. He rules in righteousness, and this entire time period is a time to celebrate him. And so his people come to rule with him and his kingdom upon the earth. The king has his bride, and the whole world celebrates that for a thousand years. Now, when we get down to verse number 11, the king comes to subdue his enemies, and that's when the bride is presented to the world. And so you have this time on earth where the earth is prepared for this. It's an appropriate time for the celebration. Disease has been eradicated. The economy is robust. There is no hunger. There's prosperity over the entire world. That's what I was talking about in this morning's sermon, how Matthew points out the characteristics of the kingdom of God that's coming. No sickness, no disease, uh, prosperity everywhere, uh, the, the crops that grow and hunger is eliminated. That's the way that the kingdom is going to be. I know my wife's going to be very happy about it because she won't have to be worried about being bitten by a spider. I mean, she hates any kinds of bugs, and, and she freaks out, you know, if there's a spider in the house anywhere. And she always makes sure to come and tell me, you've got to get this spider out of here. I'm not going in that room until that spider is gone. But in the millennial kingdom, you don't have to worry about things like that. Black widows are not going to worry you. The brown recluse, you don't worry about that anymore. That's one of the things I've wondered about the Millennial Kingdom. Well, you know, we're going to talk about it uh, later on, but I've always wondered what the bugs are going to eat during the Millennial Kingdom. You know, a spider kills flies. And so I always tell my wife, you kill the spiders, we're going to have more flies. 
I'm always in favor of keeping the spiders around. You might think I'm crazy, but I like the spiders. They kill the flies. But in the millennial kingdom, there, there aren't going to be any animals that kill each other. The carnivorous animals like lions, they're not going to eat their prey. And the Bible says they're going to lay in the field with the lamb. Children will play on the hole of the, of the poisonous snakes. They won't worry about that. I mean, their snakes will be like, you know, little playthings that they have. It's weird, but that's what's going to happen. Um, but I've wondered about those spiders. You know, are they still going to kill flies during the millennium? Don't ask me that question during the form class. I, I don't know the answer to it. So, you know, this is the way it's going to be. And the world is made into a perfect place to celebrate it. There are no phobias. We are talking about utopia. People have always longed for utopia to come upon the world. And this is when it's going to be. But it's only going to come to the people of God. Only those that know Christ as their Savior are going to enjoy the utopia of the millennial kingdom. So the king has his bride. There is this celebration And it lasts for a thousand years until you come to the last phase. And that is the consummation of the marriage. Now, the consummation of the marriage is actually the sealing of the bond. Now, obviously, we're not talking about a sexual encounter. Uh, Human marriages are are considered to be completed when a marriage is consummated. But, and up to that point, you know, uh, people can get an annulment. You, know, you don't have to get a divorce because the marriage has not yet been consummated and sealed by intimacy. So we're not talking about that, but we are dealing with symbolism here of the consummation. And in the Bible, it's when the bride is taken to live in her new home. And that's when this marriage is consummated between the bride and the bridegroom, between Christ and his bride, when he takes her home. The marriage is consummated. Now, where is that home of the bride? Well, the bride's home is the New Jerusalem. I know some of you may answer heaven to that question, and heaven is the home of the bride too. And actually, all those that are invited to the wedding that aren't in in uh, in, in the bride of Christ, they're also going to be in heaven Heaven's a massive place. Uh, We're never given the dimensions of heaven in the Bible. And who knows? uh, The Bible doesn't tell us. It might be everything that's outside of the earth itself. That might be heaven. I don't know. But everybody that's saved is going to live in heaven. But there is this special city in heaven. There's a capital city in heaven called the New Jerusalem. And that is where the bride of Christ is going to live. Now, if you look over in the 21st chapter of Revelation, uh, John says this in verse number 1. He's given a vision of it. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we're going to study that in detail when we get to this chapter, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this now. But the New Jerusalem is a city. It's not heaven in its entirety. We're given the dimensions of this city, beginning in verse number 15. It's measured, and it's not nearly as large as heaven will be, but it's the capital city of the new country that's called heaven. Now, verse number 2 says that the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride that's adorned for her husband. Now, that doesn't mean that the New Jerusalem is the bride, but that close connection that it has to the bride of Christ shows us that this is the place where the bride is going to live. And I believe that everybody that goes to heaven, they'll be able to go in and out of this city, but they won't live there. Only the bride of Christ is going to have the right to live in the city because she's the wife of the king, and that's what gives her the right. 
Now there, if you're looking for good reasons why that you'd want to be a member of the Lord's church, this is one of them. I mean, obviously you'd want to be a member because that's being obedient to the Lord. But uh, this is a special reason as well. You have this very, very special place in heaven to live. But then the question I think we would ask is, is everybody, is everybody that's in the church, a member of the Lord's church, are they all going to be in the bride? Well, I think it's actually much more select than that. I believe that the bride's composition is the consecrated of the church. This is a very special group of people. Now, let me say this as well. Who's going to live there? Well, I wouldn't say that marginal Christians will live there. I don't think that, that people that walk this fine line between the world and, and, and God are going to live there. I don't think people that are unconcerned about their holiness are going to live there. And that's something that you might want to consider when you're using bad language and when you go to places where Christians ought not to go and when you make friends with the world. I mean, do you think that Christ has prepared this beautiful city, a spectacular place like this, for people that would bring reproach upon his name? Does he prepare a place for people like this that, that would turn others off to the cause of Christ by a bad testimony? Now, we're talking here about a, a place for a chaste bride, one that's adorned herself with righteous works. And, and we know the works didn't save her, but they're evidence of her salvation. They clothe her, and they identify her with Christ. Christ is not going to have a naked bride. She's going to be adorned with her righteous works. And then I also know that unbaptized people are not going to live there. That might surprise you. That's a qualification? You mean you have to be baptized? Well, I would say yes. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is identification with Christ. That's the door of entrance into the visible church, and it's an act of obedience. So do you think that the New Jerusalem would be prepared for people that, that, and they would live there who have never publicly identified with Christ in baptism? So those that are not baptized can't be a part of the church, and so they're not going to be able to live in the city. But does that mean that because you have been baptized and because you do have your name on the church roll that automatically you're in the bride of Christ? I don't think so. I think that there is a consecrated life required from those who are members of the Lord's church. Now, we can tie that into the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, what do you suppose that Paul would have us to examine? What is the criteria in the Scripture here? Why doesn't Paul say, now, if you're baptized, and if you are a member of the church, you can come to the supper? Now, he's going to address baptism and church membership in the next chapter, chapter 12. And all of those that are in the Corinthian church, they're baptized. They're all listed on the roll of the Corinthian Baptist church. And so is membership in the Lord's church, is that, that's all that required, the baptism? Well, evidently not, because Paul says you must examine yourself. And if everyone examined themselves, they'd find baptism. And they'll find the church membership. All of them are a part of that. So there's no point in examining that. And so there has to be something else that qualifies people for the admittance to the supper. And the simple answer to that is the holiness of a person's life. It's the holiness of your life that qualifies you to come. Now, if you aren't holy then you'll take the supper, you'll eat it in an unworthy manner. 
And so there has to be this heart of confession of sin. There has to be a determination that you'll give up those sins, anything that would hinder your service to God. And so it's not as simple as saying, well, okay, I I bowed my head as you told us to do before we started the supper. You said bow your heads, confess your sins. I did that. Now I'm ready to go. Pass the plate, the juice. I'm ready to eat and drink. And there might be some of you that would do that. You may bow your heads and you may confess, but you haven't really repented. And you know how I know? Because your life is not going to be any different when you leave here. I mean, you'll leave here and you'll go right back to the things that you did before. You go right back to that social networking that we talked about this morning and into all those forays of sin. And as I said this morning, you'll paste that all over everywhere and let 5,000 of your closest friends know what you're all about. Now, if you want to start the new year right, here's what you need to do. You need to forsake that. You need to confess that because those kinds of things hinder God's work in the church. You see what happens when you bring people in and and they see you in the church and they learn about your church persona and they see what you are here, but then they find out about your Facebook persona and they see it's much, much different and they see how hypocritical that is. And I think what some people are doing in the church is they're killing everything that we try to do here by not living a holy life. So should that person take the supper? I would say no, not unless they're willing to give up that sin and to forsake it, to not go back to it. You're not going to eat worthily. You won't eat the Lord's Supper worthily with the intent that you're going to jump right back into any sin that you've committed before. And you're going to confess that thing, and you're going to try to give that up and genuinely confess it and repent of it. And so I will tell you, bow your heads, confess your sins, repent of those sins. But I wonder how many people tonight will bow their heads and say nothing to God. And how many people will pray a prayer that's hypocritical? God knows your heart. You can't fool God. Now, if there is some other criteria that would keep you from participating in the Lord's Supper, then do you think that that would be sufficient enough to cause you not to be a part of the bride and to live in the New Jerusalem? I mean, if we're talking about something that takes place on earth here and you haven't been proved worthy by the holiness of your life to take the Lord's Supper... Would you think that the requirements for living in the New Jerusalem, that the bride living in the New Jerusalem for eternity, that the requirements would be less than something we do here in this supper tonight? I don't think so. And I don't think there's really any way that you can get around that argument. And if you don't care about this, this is what you'll do. You'll go on just like you were. But if that's in your heart and you don't make a change, then you have every reason to question whether your heart's actually been changed at all. Perhaps your heart hasn't been regenerated because Christians do not habitually live in sin. So remember that. Now, I want to finish the message tonight by looking at verse number 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that had the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, we know that John received this information from an angel. He saw into heaven, and he heard the hallelujahs. He saw the preparations that are made for the wedding feast. He saw the beautiful bride that was adorned in her white garments. And he realized the gravity of this scene. And when he realized that, there was only one thing that would come to his mind. Worship. He must worship God. He sees all of this happening. He knows that God must be praised, so he must worship. 
He knows the king is coming to establish that millennial kingdom. He knows the king is bringing his redeemed with him that will enter into the millennium. And that information is just too overwhelming for him. So he does the only thing that he can do. This prompts in him the idea that he must worship. A servant of the king will always bow his knees in worship. Now that sounds like a good thing to do. It sounds like what he should do, shouldn't it? Or doesn't it? You should worship, shouldn't you? Well, it is what he should do. But he shouldn't worship the one who gave him the message. This was an angel. And that angel was as anxious to refuse his worship as John was to give it. Now, you think about it. What if an angel appeared in Berean Baptist Church tonight? What would you do? I mean, if suddenly an angel came down like those angels that were at the birth of Christ, and you saw the shining white robes, and you saw the glory of God radiating from an angel, what would you do? Well, I think 99 out of 100 100 of us would bow and worship. I mean, the first thing we'd do is go down to our knees. We'd be awestruck. But we'd also be wrong because we're not supposed to worship angels. And yet you'll look around and you'll see those in Christianity that are worship statues. They worship angels. They worship statues of men. They worship statues of popes and statues of saints and statues of Mary. People bow and worship those. Now, if you couldn't worship the real thing, If John was forbidden to worship the real thing, then what in the world would make you think that you could bow and worship a statue? How can you worship Mary? And how can you worship angels and all these other, and the saints? I mean, how can you do that? Well, you aren't supposed to do it. You should never do such a thing. The only one who's to be worshipped is God. Angels don't deserve worship. Saints don't deserve worship. All of them are fellow servants. Mary was a fellow servant. She doesn't deserve to be worshipped. So you don't worship them. And a holy elect angel will just as soon be sent to hell forever as to have somebody bow down and worship him because he knows that he does not deserve what belongs to God only. And then I'll tell you something else. A true messenger of God is never going to accept worship. He's not going to desire glory that goes to God. But a usurper will. You take a man who has people come and bow and kiss his ring and kiss his toe... He's a usurper. He he desires that glory, and he shouldn't have it. A true messenger of God would never ask for that. And I'll go even a little bit further than that. Baptist preachers are also fellow servants, and they're not to be worshipped. But, you know, there, there are preachers that have their groupies, and talked about that the other night, I think on Wednesday night maybe, and they love to parade themselves around. They love to have people applaud them. And do you know that not one of the apostles would ever allow that to happen Paul was against the worship of personalities. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 3. For ye are, are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God giveth the increase. And that's enough to tell me that we don't applaud men. We don't worship men. They don't deserve glory. God deserves the glory. So John is told, don't you worship this angel. And that angel knows his place. He knows he's nothing but a messenger of God. He knows that he's God's subject. 
But the angels also know something else. They know that they are going to be subject to God's people also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Well, I think the primary meaning of that verse is that we are going to judge the evil angels. But I like something that Albert Barnes says. Uh, He makes the application that one day God's people are going to be made higher than the angels. And this may very well be what Paul refers to. We're special objects of God's mercy and his grace. And so even the angels, they desire to look into this redemption that's been provided by Christ. Now, one further point, and I'll be through. The angel says, I am thy fellow servant. And then he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. An angel's job is to do nothing other than what all of creation should do, and that's to bear testimony of Jesus. We're talking here about his revelation. This is all about him. All eyes are on him. All prophecy that's given in the Scripture concerning this is about him. It's for the purpose of the testimony of Christ. And so prophecy is not for the purpose merely of giving us a glimpse into the future. It's not to tell us what the tribulation is going to be like. It's not to catch us up on what heaven is going to be like. It's not to tell us the part that we're going to play. That's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is so that all eyes will be on Jesus. Prophecy is for his testimony. And that's what everything that we do in this church is all about. It's all about the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we come then to this very special observance of the Lord's Supper, and this is a testimony of Jesus Christ. And we observe this because the Lord's Supper testifies of him. We're a part of the bride of Christ. We've been talking about that for the past few weeks. The bride is the church. She loves her Lord and her Master. She she worships him. She loves him because he gave his life for us. He, He saved us by his death on the cross. He's coming back to get us. He's made us his bride And so we take this supper night tonight in celebration of that wonderful event where Jesus gave his life for us. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, the scripture says we do this until the Lord comes again. And so every time that we take the Lord's Supper, our mind should be put into the frame of reference that we've been talking about for all these many weeks. And that is that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming to take his people. And so we keep in memory his death until he comes again to take that bride and then make his presentation of her and to celebrate this great wedding feast. Now, I'd like for our musicians to come, if you would, and I'd like for our deacons to get into place. And we're going to sing about the death of Christ tonight. Uh, uh, Now one of my favorite songs, The Power of the Cross, and then we're going to be ready to observe the supper. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, come into your presence tonight and we just thank you so much for Jesus Christ we thank you for these lessons that we've had concerning the bride of Christ I do pray Lord tonight that every person here knows you as Savior they are baptized they are a part of your church and they've surrendered themselves in holiness to you to serve you to the very best of their ability we do all these things as a testimony of Jesus Christ and so Lord we pray you would be with us tonight that you would show us Uh, your death in this beautiful uh, supper that we take, this emblem of your body and of your blood. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.